0: Hi, I'm Jarrett Murphy, sitting in for Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, a guilty verdict in the case of a Brooklyn City bike cyclist killed by a bus. Even
1: if Mr. Hanningby had had his hands off of the handlebars, even if he were blindfolded, the fact that he was in front of the bus in the roadway meant that he lawfully had the right of way, and it was the responsibility of Mr. Lewis to, to break it
0: and then blue candidate red seat this time around will the math swing in favor of state senate contender andrew gunardis
2: we're not counting on any mythical blue wave to carry us over the top if that materializes fantastic we'll have been a part of it but we're not leaving anything for granted we're not taking anything for granted and we're going to make sure that we fight for every vote across every corner of the district we're going to win this election on doorsteps we're going to win this election at supermarkets and subways and churches and mosques and synagogues
0: Thanks for joining us. Just ahead on the show, Catch 22, as in, can a Democrat catch an incumbent Republican in State Senate District 22? I'll be speaking with that Democrat, Andrew Gunardis, about his campaign to unseat Brooklyn's lone GOP senator, Marty Golden. But first, on Monday, a bus driver was found guilty in the case of the death of a city bike rider, Brooklynite Dan Hannigby. The bus and rider were traveling along a one-way street in Chelsea last year when the driver, Dave Lewis, overtook Hannigby, clipped his handlebar, and sent him sprawling underneath the bus tires. To tell us about the verdict and its significance, we're joined on the phone by local reporter Emma Whitford. Thanks for joining us, Emma.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So tell us a little more about the details of this case. What was the story?
1: had an interesting trajectory with this story. I started covering it last June uh, when Mr. Hannigby passed away. Um, I was at Gothamist at the time. And one of the interesting themes of this story, it's been the case tragically in some other some other cyclists who have died on New York City streets in recent years. But right after Mr. Hannigby's death, there were these initial police reports that claimed that, you know, according to an initial investigation, Mr. Hannigby had swerved in his trajectory on West 26th Street, swerved around the parked vehicle and into the bus. And immediately there was a lot of outcry from State Street advocates who sort of saw in that a tone of uh, victim blaming coming from the NYPD. And shortly after those initial reports came out, I was able to view some surveillance footage that ultimately ended up factoring large in the trial that contradicted those initial police reports and showed uh, Mr. Hanningby traveling in a, in a straight trajectory along West 26th Street before the bus overtook him. So I think there are sort of two stories here. One is of how police initially report on these tragic cases and sort of misinformation that's that spread early on that might place blame on the victim. And then this trial was focused around relatively new piece of legislation called the right-of-way law, which was passed in 2014 in New York City, and it was sort of a, it was definitely like a hard-won victory for transit activists, and it basically turned failure to yield into a misdemeanor, so a minor crime, which it hadn't been before. That was the top charge against Dave Lewis, the driver, when he was arrested last fall. He was offered a plea deal, which often happens in such cases when this right-of-way law is, is leveraged, and he actually turned down that plea last fall, so that's what brought us to this trial, and it's actually only the third time that a driver has gone to trial in the borough of Manhattan mm-hmm. under this law.
0: I Emma, take a step back. What do we know about Dan Hannigby?
1: So Dan was 36 years old when he passed away, a father of two. He worked in finance. He was married. He lived in Brooklyn Heights. And, you know, I was able to talk to some of his, some of his family members and friends last summer, and he was an avid cyclist. And yeah, just really beloved. I mean, his his wife and some friends and family were in the courtroom yesterday, and it was incredibly sad.
0: Apparently, he was the first City Bike fatality. Is that right?
1: Yes, he was. So that actually gave this story um, a lot of press right off the bat. Uh, You know, City Bike was launched in 2013, and here it was, you know, three-plus years into it without a fatality. So that definitely drew a lot of attention.
0: Now, the district attorney making the decision to prosecute Dave Lewis Did that happen before or after this footage came to light?
1: So the footage, you know, I actually exclusively reported on it. Um, We did not include the footage in our reporting at the request of the family. That was last summer. Uh, The arrest followed my reporting on that footage. And then, you know, just a few weeks ago in the courtroom in Manhattan, the judge decided to release that footage to the press against the protestations of the defense attorney.
0: In the courtroom, this uh, line of victim-blaming, as you called it, that came out in the early days of police discussion of the case. Did Lewis's lawyers go that route, and what was the DA's reaction to it?
1: Yeah, no, he definitely did. So Mr. Soland, the attorney representing Mr. Lewis, put a lot of emphasis on the fact that that Mr. Hanningby was wearing over-the-ear headphones, and he described the cyclist as, quote, oblivious. There was a lot of focus in the trial on both sides on this fact that you know, both sides agreed that, that Mr. Lewis had honked his horn once before overtaking the cyclist. And you know, the defense attorney really focused on that honk and he was like, here's the cyclist, he's wearing headphones, he's quote oblivious, and sort of tried to make the case that the cyclist had plenty of time to, to get out of the way. The response to the defense attorney is that the, you know, this right of way law hinges entirely on the fact that you've got two vehicles moving in a trajectory And the one in front always has the right of way. So I thought it was really interesting that the ADA sort of painted this alternative scenario. She was like, even if Mr. Hannigby had had his hands off of the handlebars, even if he were blindfolded, the fact that he was in front of the bus in the roadway meant that he lawfully had the right of way. And it was the responsibility of Mr. Lewis to, to break.
0: So what do you think is this? You know, I guess that Dave Lewis will be sentenced eventually. But what's the broader significance of this verdict?
1: I, you know, I think State street advocates have, have really picked up on uh, you know thinking back to a year ago and this sort of victim blaming. You know, in my story, I referenced actually two cyclists who passed away in Brooklyn in 2016. One was Lauren Davis, and another was James Gregg. Uh, Lauren Davis was police initially said that she was biking against traffic on Classen Avenue when she was struck and killed, and later redacted that and said in fact she was traveling with uh, the flow of traffic. James Gregg was uh, killed by a truck driver in Park Slope, initial report said that he was holding on to the side of the truck right before he was killed and then that was rolled back. So I think it's a victory for advocates to look at this and be like, let's take this as, as a lesson. And in their statement, in a statement from Transportation Alternatives, they sort of go out of their way to urge NYPD C- Commissioner O'Neill to you know, stop this victim blaming and just making sure that officers, that the NYPD officers wait to comment on traffic crashes until there's been a thorough investigation completed. You know, there's sort of this culture um, oftentimes reporters have on background, kind of behind the scenes relationships with press officers within the NYPD. And it's easy for these unattributed comments to leak. And then that kind of sets the tone and there's uh, some damage done to the victim's reputation right there.
0: Reporter Emma Whitford, thanks very much for talking us through this case. Thank you. Up next, Senate candidate Andrew Gunardis. <music> November 6th is going to tell us a lot about what the next two years will look like here in New York and across the United States. We'll learn whether Republicans have held on to the U.S. Senate and the House, and whether Democrats are able to seize control of the New York State Senate. Most races in the city are unlikely to affect those balances of power, but there's at least one exception here in Brooklyn, the 22nd Senatorial District, which runs from Bay Ridge through Bensonhurst out to Gerritsen Beach. That's where eight-term Republican Marty Golden is trying to fend off a challenge from Democrat Andrew Ganardis, who joins us here today. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much. Welcome back. Thank you. We last spoke well before the primary. The primary's come and gone. You've won. And what's the atmosphere been like since then?
2: Uh, it's been tremendous. I mean, we were we ran a very, very competitive primary race, and it was a you know, really tough race to get through. We won with 58% of the vote, very proud of that, and the work that we put into that to that victory. But ever since that, we've been focusing our attention solely on the general election, and we have been uh, expanding the, the scope and the scale of our campaign dramatically. We've opened up three new offices across the district, hired four more full-time staff members, recruited hundreds of new volunteers to come down and help knock on doors, make phone calls. The energy has been incredible, uh, and there's definitely something palpable on the ground that we're hearing and we're feeling as we're heading into the final weeks of the general election.
0: Is the race about Donald Trump?
2: No, I mean, that's definitely a part of it. That's definitely on everyone's mind. Everyone knows what's happening in D.C., and they're frankly terrified about what's happening in DC, um, but Donald Trump is not the candidate that I'm running against. I'm running against someone who has failed to deliver on really critical things that have you know, been hurting our neighborhoods for a long time, a lack of street safety and pedestrian safety, uh, a lack of fully funding our public schools, our MTA system, which is in crisis. Uh, and so when constituents see these issues and then they see the dysfunction of Washington, they put the two and two together and they say, we just need fresh people in office with new ideas and new energy to tackle some of these longstanding problems.
0: One feature of this district is that on paper, at least, Democrats have had a registration advantage, maybe throughout Golden's career, at least for the past several cycles, yet he has survived. Why is that? Is that because those folks are Democrats in name only? Are they conservative Democrats? What explains the fact that he's been able to hang on?
2: I mean, it's it's definitely a two-to-one Democratic district by enrollment. And the average Democratic candidate gets about 57% of the vote in this district. Uh, Golden has not really had that many challengers over the, his tenure up in Albany. I think he's only been challenged three, maybe four times. And you were uh, one of those I, I was one of those six, six years ago. And uh, you know, no one thought we could do better than 30%, and we proved everybody wrong by getting just under 43% of the vote. Uh, and I was very, very proud of that effort when no one gave us a shot whatsoever. So I think we showed then that Marty Golden was vulnerable, that he doesn't have a lock on this seat, and that he doesn't have a lock on the voters uh, in this district, and that people are hungry for change. And we're seeing that now more than ever.
0: It's interesting. This is cast as such a change election. There's this blue wave, a progressive feeling, huge turnout for the Democratic primary a few weeks ago. When you add all that up, some people might say, there's no way you can lose this thing.
2: I don't take any of that seriously. We're out there working every single day, knocking on doors and making phone calls and talking to voters. We're going to win this election on doorsteps. We're going to win this election at supermarkets and subways and churches and mosques and synagogues. We're not counting on any mythical blue wave to carry us over the top. If that materializes, fantastic. We'll have been a part of it. But we're not leaving anything for granted. We're not taking anything for granted. And we're going to make sure that we fight for every vote across every corner of the district.
0: Former President Obama made some endorsements in the past week, including some states in New York, some congressional races, mm-hmm. and a few of the contested state Senate contests. I don't think he weighed in on your race. Do you know why? And would you have wanted him to? Would an Obama endorsement be helpful in your district?
2: And this is a district, you know, the President Obama won this district once and he lost it narrowly a second time. So he's performed well here. He's also just narrowly lost it. The President Obama has made multiple rounds of endorsements uh, throughout this election cycle and he endorsed some Senate candidates, you know, earlier this year in the first round. He just made a second round now. I anticipate there will be a third round or if there is a third round, you know, we will obviously, uh, I'd, I'd love to have the President's support. I think the President is a unifying figure in contrast to the uh, divisiveness we're seeing coming out of the Republican Party, not just in Washington, but here in New York as well. And I think more than anything else, voters want to know that, that that the issues that they're seeing being fought over can be resolved. And they want someone to unify our communities and bring us together, not keep dividing us apart. And President Obama does that.
0: The MTA, you mentioned that, everyone mentions that as a <laughs> top issue on voters' minds. Fixing the MTA means to some degree finding the money to do that where do you want that money to come from?
2: You know, I'm, I, I've said publicly multiple times I'm a big supporter of congestion pricing. As long as the funding is dedicated to mass transit, that is really a key component of this. We don't want to charge extra fees and then not have that money go into, um, you know, fixing our transit system. But for me, you know, the MTA's funding crisis is only one part of the puzzle. I think the bigger issue affecting the MTA is the lack of accountability to the customers, the riders. And I think we need to change that. This way we can have a seat at the table. Right now, riders only have one non-voting representative on the board of the MTA. I want to change that to give riders from every borough a voting seat on the MTA board. Riders should have a right to vote on the MTA's budget. We should have a voice to say how our fare revenues get spent in terms of improving our, our signaling system, installing and building elevators and handicapped access ramps and things like that, and making sure that we're investing dollars to improve our system uh, and not wasting it.
0: It's interesting. In the discussion about the MTA between the mayor and the governor, who owns it, who controls it, who owes the money for it, some people posited, well, why don't we just let the city run it? Maybe the city should run the MTA. Why are people from upstate having anything to say about what we do with our streets and our subways and buses? What do you think about that? To me, it doesn't matter
2: who runs it. It's as long as it runs well. That's the, mo- that's the most important thing. And that's why, regardless of how the other discussions around the MTA shake out, funding, procurement reform, et cetera, I still want to have that accountability mechanism by giving riders a voice on the MTA's board. You know, the city ran the subways once many years ago. We can definitely explore doing that again. But still, riders need a seat at the table. We can't get left behind. And that's what's happening right now.
0: One of the issues that your opponent raised when he appeared in this program a couple weeks ago was uh, about crime and about the shift in policy on criminal justice, in his words, kind of going too far to the left or away from the kind of lock up theories of the 1990s. He mentioned specifically his concern about people being paroled, violent convicted felons being paroled, including people who murdered police officers. What do folks in your district say about that? And do you feel as though there are some concerns about the way that the state in recent years has approached parole?
2: Across our entire district, crime is actually down, to historic lows. Just uh, a week or two ago, the police commissioner came to the 68th Precinct Community Council to address concerns about um, some well-publicized criminal incidents. There was a shooting, there was a stabbing, but across the board, crime is down 12% in Bay Ridge and Decker Heights. It's, it's across, uh, significantly across the entire district. So public safety is always on everyone's mind, but we're not going back to the battle days of the 70s or 80s or even the early 90s, anywhere in the city, and especially not in Southern Brooklyn. Uh, you know, I know Marty Golden likes to talk tough about uh, crime, but it's not just about talking tough on crime, it's actually about having a criminal justice system that provides justice to people. And that's where Marty Golden's substance and his rhetoric lacks in terms of his record. And that's what people really care about. They care about the fact that we have rape laws in this state that you know we should be expanding the statute of limitations for. Marty Golden doesn't support that. We have a Child Victims Act, which Marty Golden refuses to support, which would allow children who have been sexually um, harassed and assaulted to have their day in court, to have justice pr- delivered to them, refuses to support that. So it's not enough just to talk tough about criminals, it's about providing justice to people who are affected by these issues.
0: On those cases he specifically mentioned though, are you okay with the possibility of a person who murdered a police officer eventually winning parole from prison?
2: If you serve your time, regardless of what that crime is, if the system has deemed you adjudicated, you've served your time, you've done your, your, your penance to society, just like anyone else, you should have the, freedom to ability, the ability to have your life given back to you. Uh, that's the way our criminal justice system is built and that's what it's designed for. We're not letting people out of jail willy-nilly. We are telling people they're, they're convicted of crimes and they are serving their time, they're paying their debt to society, and once the system deems that they have paid that debt back, they should have their life given back to them.
0: You have a very detailed gun control or gun restriction agenda as part of your policy platform. You mentioned specifically the boyfriend loophole, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that and what you want to do to well, address that. So
2: what we want to try to do is, you know, in the state of New York, if you are, it, it's really about domestic violence abusers, and if you have open warrants against you for domestic violence cases, there's nothing to stop you from getting a gun in the state of New York. We want to close that loophole because we know that most gun violence that happens at the home happens as a result of domestic violence incidences. That's a problem, and it's so easily fixed. And everyone wants to close that loophole except for Senate Republicans and Marty Goldman It's beyond me why we can't seem to get these common sense gun laws passed here in the state of New York, even with Republicans in in charge of the state Senate at this point.
0: When people talk about guns in New York, frequently the kind of counter argument is, look, most of the guns come from out of state or many of our crime guns from out of state. We can do whatever we want to our laws here. It's still going to come up I-95. How do we deal with that?
2: I mean, we have really robust investigations to stop the the, uh, the. iron pipeline coming up from the south and other places. Um, But we should still make it more difficult to own a gun here in the state of New York. You can own it legally as long as you use it properly and you store it properly. And that's also a reason why we need national gun legislation to make sure that we're addressing this problem on a national level. As long as Washington, D.C. is going to continue to fail to act on this, there should be nothing to stop New York state from protecting its own and passing strict gun laws that are going to make sure that we keep people in the state safe.
0: So you have a lot of ideas in your platform, and the question is if, when, you win, get up to Albany. I like the it's, when. <laughs> it's reputed to be this dysfunctional place, right? How is that approach going to work there, given that we've seen other good ideas either fester or, or kind of die in Albany?
2: We've seen those ideas die because we keep sending the same people to Albany year after year after year. Talk about a change election. We saw what happened during the primary this year, wholesale change across the board. Six incumbents defeated for re-election re-election uh, seven incumbents defeated for re-election. That's unheard of. The, the electorate and people in these neighborhoods are clamoring for change because they're fed up with that dysfunction that's been brought to them by years and years and years of sending the same people to Albany. So how we're gonna solve these problems, how we're gonna enact these policies and this agenda is by changing the people we send there, including in my district. So I feel fully confident that when we do that, well, we will be able to, to kind of finally, once and for all, uh, achieve some of these goals that we've been working towards for so long.
0: Do you feel a certain amount of pressure on your shoulders to turn the Senate blue? Uh,
2: no, I think you know there are a number of competitive seats that uh, we have the ability to turn the Senate blue uh, across the state, but it's not just about winning one seat. You know, one seat's not enough. We need to win three, four, five, six seats in order to have a true governing majority. Uh, And that's what it's going to take. And so I'm really pulling for each one of my colleagues who are running competitive races across the state. I think they all have phenomenal chances. And I think that together, we're going to be able to deliver an agenda for the people of this state that's going to really make a difference in their lives.
0: You have a uh, agenda around making voting itself easier and more inclusive, Mm -hmm. including um, some language help for naturalized citizens so it's easier for them to vote. What do you think about non-citizen voting?
2: That's something that I'm really looking at. I don't have the answer to that yet to be truthfully honest with you. Uh, I, I, I believe that one of the hallmarks of citizenship Uh, is the right to vote, and that that's one of the major reasons why people choose to become citizens, because they wanna be able to have a say in our democracy. But I'm also sympathetic to the idea that people who live here, who are legalized here, illegal residents, don't have a say in government anywhere else. So I I want people to feel like their voices are being heard. And there's a lot of different ways we can do that. I don't know if voting is the way to do that. We can increase access at the community education council level, the community board level, find other ways to incorporate voices. But it's an issue that I want to hear about more from people and talk to more experts about and more people in my community about and, and see what they think about that type of issue.
0: The Brooklyn Democratic Committee has been in the news in the past few days in terms of how open it is or isn't. A recent meeting, a slate of Mm -hmm. candidates for judicial offices, the chairman of the committee uh, basically getting his, Mm -hmm. his way. Is the Brooklyn Democratic Party democratic enough?
2: Uh, I mean, I think this is a, a an organization that represents the largest Democratic county in the country. We can always make our uh, party organizations better, stronger. We can always make government better and stronger. There's never there's never a point where we say enough's enough, enough transparency, enough accountability. I think the, the King's County Democratic Party has gone through wholesale change over the last couple of years. They've enacted a number of new reforms which have been proven to be successful or in the process of working themselves and fleshing themselves out more. We're seeing new activism and new energy at the grassroots level that we've never seen before. And that's a good problem to have. We want people to come to these meetings. We want to have an auditorium full of activists who are clamoring to get involved and be part of this process because they want to take a stake in their neighborhood. So I I think it's great that we have this energy. uh, And we want to continue to make the process better for folks. We want everyone's voice to matter. That's the most important thing. Everyone should feel as if they have a stake at what's happening in their neighborhoods.
0: Senator Golden talks a lot about bread and butter issues as being the ones that people really think and care about. You know, on your policy agenda, you talk about reproductive rights, you talk about a new park on the waterfront, you talk about LGBT, you talk about climate change. Are those bread and butter issues for folks in the district?
2: They absolutely are. Bread and butter issues are economic issues. I think reproductive health and health issues in general are economic issues. If you can't afford to go to your doctor, that's an economic issue. If you live in an area in which you don't have a place to go uh, have recreational or leisurely activity or time, or because your parks are not maintained well enough, or you have no access to these things, that's an economic issue because now you have to spend more money out of your pocket to make sure your kids have opportunities to do those types of things. LGBT rights, of course, they're economic issues. We shouldn't be denying or discriminating people just on the basis of their gender identity or who they love economic opportunity. These are all bread-and-butter issues. And the fact that Senator Golden doesn't understand that shows just how out of touch he is with his changing electorate and how, with his changing constituency.
0: Uh, climate change is a question we asked Senator Golden about. He says the jury is still out on whether it exists or Unbelievable. not. Unbelievable. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming you believe the jury is in. Uh, yes. <laughs> do you feel the state has more to do to protect the Brooklyn coast against the looming Absolutely. We haven't done
2: nearly enough to address the coastal communities of southern Brooklyn or, frankly, the coastal communities across the entire city and the state, especially if you look out towards Long Island. There's so much more we can be doing. Climate change is real. It's a threat that we need to be taking seriously. We should be looking to California as a model for their far-reaching climate change legislation that they've been passing. We need to move the state more to a a more renewable uh, energy future. This, there's no reason why the 10th largest economy in the world can't be fully renewable you know, by the year 2040, 2050. Uh, there's no reason why we can't be implementing resiliency measures along our coastlines. You know, There's legislation in Albany right now, the Community Climate Change Protection Act, that needs to be passed in order to help bring some of those resiliency funds to southern Brooklyn, and that's legislation that I promise to champion once I get to Albany.
0: Is there a day of reckoning coming on that, though? I mean, those steps you're talking about make sense, but there are costs, right? There are upfront financial costs when businesses convert to a different form of energy, there are winners and losers. Are we having an honest enough conversation about that?
2: I don't think it's about winners or losers. I think at the end of the day, we're all gonna be winners. It, there are upfront costs. There's all, there, there are upfront costs for everything. There's an upfront cost when you buy a car, when you make a big purchase, when you're buying a home. There's always upfront costs. It's a matter about the return on the investment that we're getting. Going to a fully renewable future is a smart investment that'll help not only protect our communities, but pay many, many dividends in the long
0: run. Andrew Guenardas, Democrat for the 22nd Senatorial District on November 6th, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And now, some news in collaboration with Brookliner. Several recent incidents of gunfire near Fulton Mall and Borough Hall have residents and area workers concerned. On Monday, there were shots fired in broad daylight, which sent people to the nearby Shake Shack for cover. Two individuals were grazed by the bullets and sought treatment in area hospitals for wounds that were not considered life-threatening. This was the third such incident in recent months, and Borough President Eric Adams, whose office is in the vicinity, had this to say, Gun violence anywhere is unacceptable and it is particularly heinous for what appears to be gang-related activity threatening vulnerable children, families, and seniors around the busy Fulton Mall area. In the coming days, I will convene local stakeholders to discuss how we will collectively work to make this neighborhood safer at all hours of the day. Postal workers got a pay raise about a year ago, but apparently it didn't come soon enough for some, including one USPS employee in East New York, who along with three others was indicted in a Brooklyn court on Monday for stealing checks from the mail. Over the course of two months in late 2016, the group allegedly stole $29,200 in checks, including $3,700 from residents at a facility that serves the homeless. Apparently, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor prospective prison time could stay this courier from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. If you've ever ridden the two or three train into Brooklyn and exited at Clark Street, then this next headline will hit home because you've already seen it play out in your nightmares. The only way out of Clark Street Station is by elevator, and at rush hour, those elevators can get packed. On Monday morning, one lift was filled with approximately 20 people when it got stuck, for an hour. This got us thinking about the psychology of waiting. Here are some truisms written up by a Harvard business management expert. One, unoccupied time feels longer than occupied time. In other words, try Tetris. Two, anxiety makes the wait seem longer. Thanks. No need to get anxious when standing chest to back with people you never met in a box dangling from a cable. Three. Uncertain weights feel longer than known weights. Maybe elevators need those schedule clocks, too, like the FDNY will arrive in 10 minutes. And four. Solo weights feel longer than group ones. Ah, there's the saving grace. If you get stuck, make sure you're surrounded by a whole bunch of your closest strangers. For more on these and other stories, check out Brooklyner at bklyner.com. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, please join us for Ashley's special conversation with author and humorist Fran Lebowitz. 112BK is hosted by Ashley C. Ford, but she's off getting married, so right now it's hosted by me, Jarrett Murphy. It's written and produced by Ross Tuttle. And also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargui, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Emily Boghosian and Naeem Van. It's directed by Clinton Philson Jr. and recorded by Eric Haugaseg and Antonio M. Rosario. edited by Mira Arahim, and executive produced by Aziz Isham, Jonathan Leith, and Sasha Mathias.